Hello, and welcome to Disneyversity, the podcast crash course through the history of Disney's animated classics, where we talk about some of the most famous movies ever made that most of us probably don't know nearly as well as we think. Each episode, we'll be moving forward in time through the legendary Disney catalogue, watching every feature film in the Walt Disney Animation Studios vault, from Snow White to Encanto, seeing how they stand up today, how they pushed the boundaries of animation, shaped the legacy of Walt Disney and the wider Disney brand, and how they influenced pop culture at large. disclaimer this is not an official disney podcast but all of these films are available to stream now on disney plus so come on watch along with us and let's learn together i'm film journalist ben travis and we might still be in the middle of our short break in the regularly scheduled podcast but for now we are back with another study group episode. this is our regular bonus feature where we mark the end of an era in the walt disney animation studios catalog this time being the Dark Age. So you know what that means. There's no required viewing this week. There is no homework, no assignments. Just come and listen to us chat, and we'll be looking back over the eight films we've just covered in the show. That's The Aristocats, Robin Hood, The Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh, The Rescuers, The Fox and the Hound, The Black Cauldron, The Great Mouse Detective, and Oliver and Company. We'll be discussing our favourite sequences, songs, and characters. We'll be updating our rankings and setting the stage for the studio's next era. As usual, I'm not alone in this, and joining me to discuss all of the above over the next hour or so is our resident lecturer, Dr. Sam Summers. Sam, it's been a couple of months since we've recorded. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm pretty good, yeah. I have actually been technically off work. I haven't been lecturing for a few weeks, so I'm about as relaxed as I ever get at the moment. Oh, um, hopefully that comes across. Yeah, that's pretty sweet. And so, yeah, it's been a few weeks since we last sat down to record. In that time, I have had Oliver and Company songs in my head on a loop. We should clarify, we ended the last episode of the show saying that we were about to go and do karaoke, and we really, really, really wanted to do Why Should I Worry at Cozy Joe's in Newcastle. Shout out to Cozy Joe. <laughs> But we left people hanging. We have not let people know whether we did indeed manage to find that song on the Cozy Joe's catalogue. And I can confirm now that we did. Sam and I did duet Why Should I Worry in Newcastle at karaoke. It was a glorious thing. It was amazing. I had a great time. It was a miracle that it was even on there. Yeah. Because that's like a real deep cut, right? Mm-hmm. That it's, that it's even on the machine. There is both photographic and video evidence of this and i don't know where it is i know one of our various friends who was there has the footage if you're listening to this <laughs> if you're if you're listening to this and you were there at cozy jaws with us and you have footage please supply um, it we need to see please it please share I don't know where it's gone. But you're right, it is a miracle it was on there, because in in this gap in the pod, I've also separately done karaoke with some Empire friends at Lucky Voice. Lucky Voice is like the big dog of the karaoke booth market. And the good thing is, they had some Encanto songs. They had We Don't Talk About Bruno. They had Surface Pressure. Did both of those. Uh, Cozy Joe's didn't have any Encanto stuff, but Lucky Voice didn't have Why Should I Worry? It didn't have anything from Oliver and Company. So the underdog, Cozy Joe, swanned off with the crown with a 
string of sausages around its neck. Actually, what's interesting, I think we should dedicate this podcast to the memory of We Don't Talk About Bruno because it was murdered brutally by... uh... By the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences at the Oscars this year. That's something that's happened since last time. And I'm pretty sure that by far the most controversial talked about atrocity committed at that awards ceremony was what they did to We Don't Talk About Bruno. Which I was watching it live. You were watching it as live as well, weren't you, Sam? I was watching it live as well. You were doing it for your job. Yes. I was doing it because I'm a maniac. I was in work mode. You were in, hey, this is what I do for fun mode. <laughs> and I was so excited about the Bruno performance. I was like, we're finally going to get to see the cast singing that song. And it's, again, not your typical Disney song. It's like an ensemble number. So everyone's going to be there. And there's so many overlapping harmonies. How are they going to stage it? What cool things are they going to do with it? And it started so well. They just started doing the song. The cast was there. It was great. They were doing like similar dance moves in the crowd. Then Megan the Stallion comes out. I'm over the moon. This is incredible. Megan the Stallion is kicking things up a gear. She's got her own verse. Then I was expecting it to go back to our regular We Don't Talk About Bruno, and that did not happen. And this whole thing tanked so fast. I went from being like, this is amazing. This is amazing. This is the best thing ever to, oh my God, what am I seeing? It turned into this thing called, like, we need to talk about oscars we need to celebrate oscar we need to celebrate oscars <laughs> oh just absolutely terrible <laughs> i mean like as well i like megan the stallion a lot you like megan the stallion a lot when she first came out it was kind of like oh this is cool but then those the lyrics to that verse i don't know whether she wrote them or if she had a lot of time to work on them but um magic everywhere stars everywhere i need to see oscars Zendaya over there. That's not... I mean, you can do better than that. (laughs) She wrote a song ten times better than that about Flamin' Hot Cheetos that came out (laughs) recently. I mean... So, okay, yeah, that's a thing that happened. So that was a very disappointing thing. We also had, well, Encanto won Best Animated Feature at the Oscars. Well done to yep. to everyone who worked on that, all the lovely people who worked on that. But there was that weird intro where the three actors who have all played Disney princesses on screen came out and they were like, ah, oh, these are the films that your kids like that the adults have to sit through and watch a hundred times and not get bored. Which, you know, there's been a lot of conversation about how it's sort of demeaned the entire medium of animation rather than celebrating it. To be like, ha, this is the one the kids like and the parents just have to sit with it. So that was a bit of a shame. I mean, you've got a documentary about Afghan refugees nominated for Best Animated Feature, which is which is Flea, if you're interested. And uh, that's a really great movie for demonstrating the breadth of what animation can be. And I can't imagine many children demanding a tenth viewing of Flea on a Sunday afternoon. You know what I mean? It's not... You've automatically cast one of the nominees into the trash can just with that intro saying like, oh, by the way, look at all these movies that your kids want to watch. Like, well, you don't even... Have you even looked at the list? Here we go. I need to calm down. We're bringing back a lot of like... Raw feelings. Bad vibes from several weeks ago that I thought I'd moved past. But yeah, I've never been a big fan of how animation is treated at the Oscars and uh, it doesn't look like it's getting any better anytime soon. Yeah, but good list of nominees this year, like lots of great films. It was. I mean, Encanto's a great film. Yeah. If it wasn't for Mitchell's vs. the Machines, directed by friend of the pod, Mike Rianda, 
that would have been a valid winner from that category. Personally, I think Mitchell's blew it out the water, but like, Encanto's a good movie. I'm not mad at Encanto. Most of the time, I'm not mad at the Disney movies that they always give this award to, you know? Like, Inside Out, great movie, fine, no problem. You know, Zootopia, I like that movie even. I like Big Hero 6, great movie, but it's the repetition. It's, it's the every single time that does it. Well, let's try and banish our memory of everything that happened at the Oscars and get on to something else that's happened in the meantime while we've been on our break, which was the release of Turning Red, the new Pixar movie. I feel like in our study group episodes, it's always a chance to be like, also this happened in the world of Pixar, Turning Mm. Red, Domi Shi's directorial debut, her short bow was amazing, and this is such a lovely film, I loved it so much. Were you a fan of Turning Red? Yeah, great movie, really excellent. Is it worth telling people what Turning Red's about? A teenage girl who, at moments of heightened emotion, starts turning into a red panda, uh, which turns out to be hereditary condition. I guess we can say that much if you haven't seen it. If you haven't seen it, what have you been doing? Yeah, go to Disney Plus now. It's it's there. It's right there waiting for you. And it is an absolutely joyous watch. Yeah, you know, it's a more interesting style of animation than we used to, which I think we're starting to see more and more, especially out of Pixar these days. Uh, I I don't necessarily just want to call it like a post-Spider-Verse visual experimentation, because I'm sure things like Soul and, and the visual experiments in that were in the works probably before that movie. You know, Bao, there's some visual shared DNA between Bao and Turn and Red, but it just takes the medium of computer animation in different directions to what we're used to from Pixar. The characters are a lot more cartoony and expressive in this, which is something that just delights me whenever I... And, you know, it's it's a style that many people have delighted in pointing out is drawn heavily from what Cartoon Network and people like that have been up to for the last, like, 10, 15 years or so in shows like Steven Universe and Adventure Time. But seeing that translated into 3D and retaining the expressivity of it especially when you're telling this story which is about emotions and which is from the perspective of someone going through periods of heightened emotion and excitement and it's really appropriate for the story that's being told. And the panda's gorgeous and adorable and hopefully by the time our next visit at Disney theme park, I'll be able to cuddle that panda. Oh my god, yeah, they should just set up a station where you can be like Abby, the excitable friend uh, in the group who's just like, ah, I need the panda, it's so fluffy. Yeah, the film is amazing. I love how unabashedly and unashamedly it takes, uh, it sort of presents it through the head of May, the central character, of wholeheartedly embracing this teenage girlness, that it's boy bands and pastel colours and sparkliness and sort of emoji reactions and it's just has a really distinctive visual style. For me, I think Pixar are on such a roll at the moment. I think they're on a really underrated streak starting really with Onward into Soul, into Luca, into this, of just telling really personal stories to the filmmakers, doing things that are really interesting narratively or visually or both, that, yeah, this last little run of Pixar movies feels kind of slept on. Oh, is it because they've all been dropped on Disney Plus with very little fanfare in most cases? Arguably. Could be, although I did get a feeling, especially with Luca and Turning Red, that loads of people ended up seeing that because it was just there, the amount of conversation around those films. Yeah. But it is massively disappointing that they haven't been available in cinemas because Turning Red, you just want to see that on the big screen. You want to hear that Ludwig Göransson score, which is incredible. It's 
so great. You want to hear that pumping out of a cinema speaker and, and see those gorgeous uh, sequences visually in Turning Red as well, all the like, sort of anime-inspired fight scenes and May leaping over the rooftops of Toronto and yeah, you want to see that on the big screen? Come on! I think you're right because I think we saw it with Encanto where that movie was in the cinema and it did pretty well and then it hit Disney Plus over Christmas, which I think is also significant, and it became iconic. Blew it up. became an unstoppable cultural force because more people can watch it. But I also think that, especially with these Pixar movies, which I don't think any, I don't think you would say any of them have blown up to the extent that Encanto did, nor did Ryder and the Last Dragon either. So I think um, Encanto, in a way, is a one-off, and the soundtrack plays a big role in that. But putting them on Disney Plus does, I think, suggest that they've got less currency, you know what I mean? That they are less worthy of being in a cinema. I think especially these days when in most of the world cinemas are open and movies like Spider-Man are making record box office, I think it says something implicitly to an audience when you put something straight on Disney Plus instead of putting it on the big screen. I don't think that's the message we should be putting out there about these movies, which are telling stories that are, yes, more personal, but are also, in this case, specifically Asian specifically female you know representing groups that aren't typically represented in a lot of these movies as well soul being specifically black and you know i think if we're talking about the pixar streak i'm very interested in lightyear i find it conceptually hard to deal with but <laughs> what is it sam is, it, is yeah. it in the universe of toy story is it about the universe of toy story is it a fictional thing in andy's work what is going on Look, okay, if we're doing this, we're doing this. There is absolutely no way, despite what Chris Evans may have accidentally implied in a tweet once, <laughs> and despite what many people on many articles and podcasts have tried to suggest, there is no way that this movie is canon in the Toy Story universe. There is no way that Buzz Lightyear the toy is based on Buzz Lightyear the human man who was an actual astronaut who existed in Andy's universe. And to be clear, it hasn't just gone to space, but is interacting with aliens and robots and an actual yeah. <laughs> evil Emperor Zerg. This is a movie that Andy could watch in the cinema. That's what I'm saying. There was a cartoon TV show in the late 90s, just after Toy Story 2 came out, called Buzz Lightyear of Star Command, mm. which was also about Buzz Lightyear's sci-fi adventures in outer space. And in the opening of that show, you saw the toys in Andy's room gathering around the TV to watch the cartoon. And I actually wouldn't be surprised if there wasn't a similar frame and device in the movie Lightyear of, like, Bonnie going to the cinema with her Buzz Lightyear toy to watch the movie or something like that, you know? It would clear things up. <laughs> but I think it looks like an interesting movie. It looks like a relatively, like, grown-up, serious sci-fi it looks like interstellar i think it looks kind of it looks like star wars it looks like pixar doing a star wars movie without it being straight up star wars you get those shots of this sort of effectively jump to hyperspace in a pixar movie in a big alien adventure that as you say yeah there feels like there's bits of like nolan in there as well bits of deep spacey sci-fi building those universes and those worlds i think that's kind of amazing plus is written by Pete Docter, Pixar legend, head of Pixar now. He's been head of Pixar for a while. He is the sole credited writer on this. So there's, you I mean, you got to imagine that the guy behind Inside Out and Up and Monsters Inc. and Soul has something pretty special that he's been working on with that. So there's been suggestions that there's some kind of bad blood between Disney proper and Pixar with all their movies getting put on Disney Plus. There's no way. Lightyear goes straight to Disney Plus. That could be a billion dollar movie. 
if it's good enough, right? Mm. If it gets good word of mouth, that could be huge. But and it's based on that IP. There's no way they're not gonna put that in cinemas. But then you look at that, and then you look at movies like Soul and Luca and Turning Red, which are representing different groups of people, representing new filmmaking voices, representing smaller, more intimate stories. In in I would say all of those cases, really, it would be nice to have seen them get the kind of platform that. Lightyear is going to enjoy and I know that's partly because of the pandemic especially in the case of Soul but um, I, I, yeah I think it's a misstep that in particular turning red in particular in, in countries like the UK where the cinema is doing as, as well as it's ever done really that could have been in the movie house in the pictures either way if you've not seen turning red yet go and watch it on disney plus it is a wonderful wonderful thing okay any last business before we get on with the rest of the show sam <laughs> I say, knowing you uh, have more business. Where do we start? <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, in the break, I've been having quite a Disney break. It doesn't always happen. I do have things in my life that I'm interested in other than the movies of Disney Animation Studios. You say that, but I'm yet to see it, Sam. <laughs> but this has been quite a Disney few weeks for me, not least because I became properly obsessed with acquiring some specific pieces of Disney merchandise that I discovered existed late February and have literally not stopped thinking about until last week when they arrived at my door. And they are... (laughs) There's this company in America, this action figure company called Super 7, who make high-end, quite expensive, made-to-order, very limited edition action figures from all sorts of different properties like they do ninja turtles they do um wrestling and i think they do ghostbusters and like like big franchises and they've started doing disney figures which are just incredible and cool with all sorts of mad like accessories from the movies you can recreate your favorite scenes i'm sounding like such a dork right now but what really drove me wild about these figures is the variety of characters that they've decided to make figures of and i think because they're like made to order they're like all right we can just go mad with this and and pick the characters that we want to make (laughs) so Wave one, which are now I'm looking at them, are all now sitting on my shelf after a great deal of effort trying to track them down from different sources because they're made to order. I did not order them when the window was open, so I've had to go out of my way. Wave one is Mickey Mouse from Fantasia, Sorcerer's Apprentice outfit. He's got the pointy hat. It comes with a broomstick. Broomstick carrying water. And we have Pinocchio from Pinocchio. He's got a Jiminy Cricket, he's got a Figaro the cat, um, he's got like a head with a long nose with a bird's nest on the ends. He's got like interchangeable heads with noses of different lengths. Most iconic Disney character, Mickey Mouse, top tier Disney movie, Pinocchio, beloved. Yeah, first five features, classics, real Disney yeah. history, like major iconic figures from those films. Makes sense. So there are three figures in Wave 1, and the third figure is... <laughs> It's Prince John from Robin Hood. Yes. What a random selection. An equally iconic character, I'm sure we can all agree. And he comes with a beautiful, like, real fabric robe with, like, a fur trim. (laughs) And he has got, like, 
different heads with different expressions and like he's got a crown that you can remove or you can put it on at an angle if it's like slipped off but the, the, the most important thing sam <laughs> that you haven't mentioned yet <laughs> is that he comes with a sir hiss he comes with two different sir hisses Double he hiss. comes with one one sir hiss that's like standard like default coiled up sir hiss having a conversation and then he's got another Sir Hiss that is posed as if he's being strangled by Prince John, and you can put him in his hand and have him scowl at Prince John while he strangles Sir Hiss. Like, what? And look, we probably don't have time now to go through the next two waves of figures that have been announced, which I will be acquiring, <laughs> again, through great hardship, I will be acquiring, in which, you know, you can Google them if you want to find out who they are, but they include characters exactly as insane as prince john from robin hood yeah that's like most of what i've spent the last two months thinking about is how to get these figures and then when i got them because i'm not a toy guy it should be said I, I was really into toys when i was like a teenager too old to be just buying toys to play with i had loads of marvel figures and i had loads of simpsons figures i was like a big collector and I don't do that now. These are the first toys that I've bought in about 10 years, like proper action figures. But I'm really, really pleased with them. I'm just going to... Apart from your Lego brickheads of, again, fellow <laughs> Disney guys. What, you got a Donald? you got a Goofy? I've got Pluto and I've got Coyote and Roadrunner as well from the Looney Tunes. Nice. Ah, oh, Prince John there with his crown. Is he strangling Sir Hiss at the moment? He's not. He's, uh, he's holding his mirror. He's got a little mirror that he can look in. I imagine pictures of these will be going up on our Twitter very soon. <laughs> oh, yeah. And um, we'll have more. Oh, so here's, there he is. My, my one disappointment <laughs> with this is that it hasn't got helicopter hiss. I would have absolutely mm. gone for a helicopter hiss. Yeah. Okay, anyway. <laughs> we'll have more toy-based <laughs> updates later in the show. Hang on, there's, there's one more thing I want to mention before, <laughs> before we get into the actual study group. Okay? Congratulations if you've made it this far. I just want to give a shout out to a guy on Letterboxd. If you don't know Letterboxd, it's a website where you can like track what films you watch and review them and make lists of them. And I joined a few months ago and I've made a lot of very long lists. You can find me on Letterboxd if you want to look at my top animated features, etc. I put my Disneyversity rankings up there and stuff as well. But there is a guy, full disclosure, I was searching for my own Disneyversity rankings so that I could remember it for this episode. And I found a guy called John David Baker who has kept a list on Letterboxd of every movie that we have ever mentioned on the Disneyversity podcast. <laughs> I mean, the level of effort is absolutely wild, and I have no idea why you've done this, but I applaud you and I thank you for the effort you've put into cataloging <laughs> just insane ramblings into a big list of every... And it's every film that's not a Disney film that we've mentioned. So Yeah, because the Disney animated films are a given, but anything else is on there. It's just like a, a mad catalogue of my brain it's like, like it's like battleship potemkin the gumby movie dr caligari robert altman's popeye it's just like <laughs> which now all of those if they weren't on the list already they're definitely on there now <laughs> well in the spirit of that i just thought look we've made it at the end of the 1980s and there's a lot of disney movies that we haven't had a chance to talk about a lot of live action disney movies with very amusing titles that the company produced in the 70s and 80s. And if you listen to the podcast, you will have heard me crack up at just the names of some of the live-action movies. Sammy the Way Out Seal. 
Yeah, well the remembered. Ugly and... Yeah, yeah, What's yeah. that donkey one? Is it just called Gus? Oh, it's Gus, yeah. <laughs> but he's, he's a football playing mule. Yes. So I just thought I would just run off a list of live action movies. These are all real that Disney made in the 70s and 80s. So while they were making the animated movies that we're discussing. And uh, John, if you're listening, just add them to the list for posterity. Uh, Scandalous John, The Million Dollar Duck, uh, The Footloose Goose, The Richest <laughs> Cat in the World, The Cat from Outer Space. The Biscuit Eater, Bride of Boogady, the sequel to Mr. <laughs> Boogady, which we have already mentioned. Justin Case, first name Justin, second name Case. Is he's he a, a lawyer or something? He's a detective. Ah, oh, nice. <laughs> uh, the Barefoot Executive, that one's about a chimp. <laughs> Wait, the best way they describe him is that he's barefoot? Not yeah, that he's, he's not, a chimp. Not the chimp executive, that'd be too obvious. The Shaggy D. Oh, sorry, sorry. No, it needs to be called like CEO, but the C stands for it stands chimp. for chimp. Chimp executive officer. Come on, it was right there. Oh, there you go. The Shaggy DA, which is the sequel to the Shaggy Dog, where he runs for office. The dog. The Apple Dumpling Gang rides again. <laughs> Seems there was this moose, which you really need an accent for, I think. Seems there was this moose. <laughs> Something like yeah. that. Unidentified flying oddball. <laughs> That's the Sir Hiss movie right there. <laughs> and finally, Nosy, the sweetest skunk in the West. I mean, that's what, about a skunk who smells good or something, or is good at smelling things? Oh, I did look this up. I can't remember. It doesn't matter. I did, I did look up what it was about. There was more to it than that. Yes, so they're all real. Some of them were made for TV movies, so it might not be on Letterboxd, but that's even funnier if John has to try, has to, like, search Nosy the Sweetest Skunk in the West. Might not even be on there. Well... Sorry for making more homework for you, John, but thank you for cataloguing every film we've mentioned so far. Again, we might link to that from the Twitter if you want to check it out. Uh, yeah, it definitely. is an absolutely cracking and cracked up list. Okay, let's get on with this. Let's wrap up the Dark Age, Sam. Okay, so over the last eight episodes of the podcast we've been looking at the dark age movies this is a different era for disney this was post walt disney he died r.i.p uh, the studio had to find out how to carry on without him we had a couple of bangover movies uh, the likes of the aristocats and the many adventures of winnie the pooh and robin hood where you still maybe felt a bit of that influence of the bangers era And then we were full on into the Dark Age, kind of darker, scarier stories, visually darker films, films that saw them expanding in different directions, maybe trying things that we hadn't seen the studio do before to varying degrees of success. But Sam, let's try and put a nice little bow on the Dark Age now that we've watched all of these films and look at what it is that defines this era of Disney. Okay, right, because that's like the first question you've got to ask about the Dark Age is, is why is it called the Dark Age? And we went with that title, like the Bangers era, that's trademark Disneyversity. <laughs> that's an original invention. But um, Dark Age... That's like a received thing. That's just what a lot of people online, not so much in in academia really, but a lot of people in fandom refer to it as the Dark Age. Like the Golden Age, that's a thing. That's like a definitive era in the history of animation. You know, we have classes with that title on the course that I teach, you know. The Disney Renaissance... Again, a lot more set in stone. And these are categories that Disney themselves have contributed towards mythologizing. You know, they've made documentaries and box sets and books about the Disney Renaissance and the Golden Age. The Dark Age, well, not so much. I don't think Disney would ever refer to their own 
movies is, is the dark age right there's books about this era called like disney in transition and things like that which try and paint it in a more positive light and you know let's look at what we'll learn from some of the mistakes that were possibly made here but if, if we're calling this the dark age we need to have some justification if we're doing that on this podcast so i I've, i would say that that phrase comes from one partly like the actual medieval dark age the fact that a lot of these things have been forgotten by a lot of people they aren't remembered as fondly or as commonly as the movies from the bangers era or the renaissance partly because i think that a lot of them have a reputation for quite dark subject matter even if that's not necessarily as true as you might think when you really get in there there was maybe like like what are the really dark tonally and subject matter wise movies from this era like really it's the black cauldron black cauldron is pulling a lot of its weight there. It, <laughs> yeah with, with the melting faces and the, and the corpses coming out of the cauldron and yeah. the big scary skeletal guy but even the stuff that was slightly darker about say the rescuers where it's like oh here's an orphan kid who's been kidnapped by some horrible villains it's darker yes but it doesn't feel as dark as half of the stuff from the first five features it doesn't feel mm. pinocchio dark or even Bambi Dark. Night on Bald Mountain. Yeah. I mean, Fox and the Hound, that's pretty bleak. Yeah. Great Mouse Detective is kind of spooky in a way. Like, it's Victorian London. It's all set at night. There's a horrible rat guy and a horrible, even more <laughs> horrible bat guy. Yeah. But I, I think, like, visually, like, literally visually, a lot of these movies are dark as well, right? Like, Rescuers, it has dark plot elements, but, it like, the palette of it is a lot darker than... For example, like Robin Hood and Winnie the Pooh, which came immediately before it. Yeah, it feels like orangey-brown in my memory is the sort of colour scheme generally of the rest yeah. of Yeah, like Great Mass Detective, lots of dark indigos and blues and kind of burgundies in that movie, Skulking I would say. around the Victorian London streets looking for clues. It has that element of this heroic character in a very dangerous world. Batman style. Yeah. He's the Dark Knight. Basil's the, the Dark Knight <laughs> of Mouse London. Yeah, so that that might be an aspect of it. And then I think one thing that really we majorly disproved as we went through, which I didn't even realise how false this was, is the assumption that these movies weren't as commercially successful. Obviously, the Renaissance, that's like another level of commercial success, the likes of which did not seem really since Snow White. But, you know, there were as many flops in the Golden Age and the Bangers era commercially, uh, or like films that underperformed, as there were in the Dark Age. And we saw movies like The Fox and the Hound, The Rescuers especially, The Great Mouse Detective, Oliver and Company, did really well commercially. Some of them got bluthed. Some of them got like slightly embarrassed by Don Bluth's movies released around the same time during that period. But the only enormous catastrophic flop from this era is the black cauldron i mean i think the thing that strikes me about this whole era i really enjoyed basically all these films even the less good ones are either interesting or weird or notable in some way i don't think there was a single film in this that i would go do you know what that was a bad film i wouldn't revisit that so this idea of it being the dark age to me just feels relative as you say the renaissance era that we're about to head into is another level of success for the studio in all kinds of ways we were coming off the bangers era which those films weren't always successful they are the some of the biggest and most well-known disney films now but at the time half of them were flops and it was all the reissues and re-releases that meant that they became known to more generations of people and finally kind of made a bit of money back but it's interesting that this is what gets labeled as the dark age the less successful era of disney for a bunch of films that actually are mostly pretty great and 
held their own money-wise. They weren't flops even when they got bluthed, even when they got outdone by other movies. They weren't exactly losing money for the studio. But how much of the way we collectively remember Disney movies and the ones that we hold up to like this gold standard is to do with Disney themselves? Like More than any other film studio out there, Disney is in complete control of its own history and how that history is sold to the public. And Disney has a version of itself that it behooves that studio to present as capital letters Disney, you know? The Renaissance movies and the Golden Age movies are the movies that form that studio's identity in the public. They're the movies that form the bedrock of, like, the ethos of Disneyland, you know? And this this sense of, like, it's fairy tales, it's musicals, it's wish fulfillment, it's when you wish upon a star, you know? Disney want you to think of Pinocchio, they want you to think of Cinderella, they want you to think of Beauty and the Beast when you think of their studio. They don't necessarily want you to think about... The Rescuers, which is a dark, weird movie with some quite unappealing characters and locales, you know? They don't want you to think about their weird dalliance with 1980s pop culture in Oliver and Company. They don't want you to think about probably how many people want to sleep with the characters in Robin Hood, genuinely. <laughs> like, I wouldn't be surprised if there are people at Disney who know what Robin Hood means to a certain section of its fan base and arguably unfairly are choosing not to remediate that movie as often as they could so as to not allow that to seep through to like the mainstream reception of what that movie is. I genuinely wouldn't be surprised if these are conversations that have happened. Yeah, and you get the sense that Disney doesn't want you to know about the Oliver, oh, Oliver, <laughs> Duna Papa <laughs> song of the yeah, French yeah. bop that accompanied Oliver and Company. Who was that by again? Annette or something, or Annie uh, or... Anne. Anne, just Anne, straight up Anne. I think it was, think it was just Anne. It's an era of the studio that they don't want you to think about for various reasons. For example, the positioning of Walt Disney as the auteur presence at the Disney studio and the guy who was the guiding hand across all of these beloved movies, which is debatably true. You know, for example, when we looked at The Jungle Book, when I was reading about The Jungle Book, there was so much written both at the time and today about how oh, this one in particular was a labour of love for Walt Disney. Even though he famously stood back from the studio while they were making Dalmatians and Sword in the Stone, he wasn't really interested in at all. There's a lot of stuff about how Jungle Boot, oh, this was like, what, it was a labour of love. This was something that was really close to his heart that he was working on. It's like, I don't think that's true. When you look at that movie, you know, that movie has more in common with the Aristocats and Robin Hood, these other Wooly Ryderman movies made after Walt's death, than it does with anything that Walt Disney actually did have a close hand in producing. So I think maybe part of why Disney doesn't draw as much attention to these movies from this era is because to do so would maybe contradict this idea that everything that's good about the very famous movies made during Walt's lifetime came somehow from the guiding hand of Walt. Like, Sword in the Stone is a worse movie than anything in this era, right? Like, definitively. Yeah, I would like, say, yeah. It's got to be, right? Obviously, the package films, I mean, that's kind of a different story, but some of those are, like, easily worse than what's been made here. But I think there are definitely movies that Walt worked on that if you were to say some of these movies were better than those, I wouldn't really try and argue too hard, you know? So I think that's a narrative that they want to perpetuate as well. 
and they are in control and they've always been in control of what movies are out on VHS, DVD, how those movies get advertised, what movies get put in cinemas, what movies get like special placement on Disney Plus, what movies have rides, everything. They're in control of what Disney movies we remember in more ways than you might care to think about. So I think the fact that we actually quite liked most, if not all, of these movies says a lot. And as I've said before, there are only two bad Disney movies. And we have not. (laughs) There are only two outright bad Disney movies and we have not encountered them yet. Okay, we'll keep that mystery going. I think I know at least one of them. In terms of the lack of Waltz, I think the thing that struck me most is that once we got past the bang over, the films that I think of as being like Dark Age, Dark Age Disney, as in The Black Cauldron, Rescuers, Great Mouse Detective, Oliver and Company, felt more forward-looking, felt more of their time, felt contemporary and trying to project some form of contemporary resonance and relevance in a way that maybe the Walt era felt more intentionally backwards looking. We talked a lot about how Walt was mythologizing his own childhood, the America he grew up in. In fact, the the history of America generally, if you look at a lot of the stuff in the package era, all the kind of cowboy stuff, it was about presenting a specific view of America then and a rose-tinted view of certain things. Whereas even films like The Black Cauldron, where it's a big fantasy context, felt like it sat in that 80s Masters of the Universe fantasy boom. Uh, the Rescuers had that like sort of 70s Bond thing going on, almost like espionage feel. Great Mouse Detective, for all that that is Victorian London as a setting, it was also kind of bonkers, slightly blockbustery 80s in its feeling, in the tones that it was playing in. Uh, and, and the same, obviously, massively so with Oliver and Company, with that kind of 80s contemporary New York City uh, in the visuals and in the way it sounds. So I think that, to me, felt like the biggest shift here, maybe, is that in the absence of Walt, it's like we need to stop looking backwards and start looking forwards or looking to the here and now for audiences wanting to see now rather than this like hey what if we made classics what if we made things that intentionally were supposed to feel kind of old school i would even apply that to robin hood in the way that it incorporates a lot of like elements of country and western and sort of contemporary attitudes into a lot of its characters despite its medieval setting and even aristocats has that like fairly modern albeit like actually probably dating back to the 1920s jazz music but yeah it's definitely i mean walt was very interested in the past and that's obvious from the animated movies that he made walt was very interested in the future and that's not something that necessarily comes through in the animation that's something that especially towards the end of his life starts to manifest heavily in the parks and in the tv show the Disneyland TV show. I mean, obviously it's because of the time that he was living in, but it feels like even the the future that Walt was dreaming of wasn't the future. It was still like a retro future. It was still a sort of 50s vision of the future. Yeah, very much so. But he was not particularly interested in the present. The only animated movie in his lifetime that was set explicitly in the present was 101 Dalmatians. Most of his live action movies were set in versions of the past and you know, there isn't really an area in Disneyland that represents the present, because why would there be? Like, I don't want to go to the present, I want to go to the past or the future. It's just like, (laughs) Main Street today, like... Presentville. (laughs) Yeah, todayland. So yeah, it doesn't doesn't really work. Yeah, that's not what he's bothered about. He's bothered about creating mythologies, whether that is of the past or the future. 
Reitherman, certainly, but very much so Katzenberg and Eisner are interested in the present. And how can we reach into people's lives to present them with things with which they are already familiar that are going to appeal to them? And that became Katzenberg's whole business model at DreamWorks. You know, that's what Shrek and Shark Tale and, and everything is. It's like, these are actors you know, these are songs that you know, these are jokes about things that you know. Hey, you know this thing? Well, it's in Shrek. There you go. <laughs> Eat it up. And, you know, for better or for worse. But you start to see that in Oliver and Company. And in different ways, you see that in some of the other Disney Renaissance movies. Okay, so if that's the wider view then of the Dark Age, let's zoom in on some of our favourite songs and sequences and characters from these films. And Sam, I'm going to go straight for your heart and say one of the films I was most charmed by in this era that I didn't really expect to gravitate towards was The Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh. And if we're talking about sequences... The fact that that was obviously uh, basically a package film, it was a series of shorts that they put together, some of those sequences in particular were so charming and lovely and sweet. The very blustery day has just really warmed my heart in such a way. And the whole playful presentation of the characters living within that book, I think we spoke about them taking Winnie the Pooh as this very British thing and kind of Americanizing it in a lot of ways with the way that those characters are drawn and the way they look, in terms of what we think of when we think of animated Winnie the Pooh. But there is so much credit to be given for the sequences that exist within the book where they animate the the words blowing around the pages of the book, the characters living in those pages of the book that do feel of a piece with the illustrations from the original A.A. Milne. And those sequences, those characters, the way that that was presented was such an unexpected delight for me as we entered into this era. I mean, you know I love that movie. You know I love anything where they experiment with the way that they're presenting these worlds and these characters because it can get a little bit stale. I already talked about it with Pixar, but you know, we've seen the Disney style of animation very much solidified and the way that they present their worlds as like self-contained and hermetically sealed is become solidified as well. So for Winnie the Pooh to break the fourth wall in its own special way and do it with such a cool visual flourish is something that's always going to really appeal to me. But I think, like, I've done a little list of my favourite, like, sequences, just my favourite scenes from this, and I think possibly, I would have to say that my number one actually is is Pooh saying goodbye. To, my voice I cracked did, there just when I said it. <laughs> I, did, I was going to say, I just heard that little, like, just, uh, oh. <laughs> is Pooh saying goodbye to Christopher Robin, or rather Christopher Robin saying goodbye to Pooh, might be more accurate. I mean, we don't need to talk about that much more than we already have, and <laughs> we'll I would really stress that we didn't. It's good. It's a really strong emotional beat that still resonates when you watch it today in a way that isn't always the case with some of those older movies. Like, I don't know, just randomly, when you think Trusty is dead in Lady and the Tramp, you know, you watch that now and it's like, it's just a Disney movie. He's going to get back up. Even like Baloo, who I love to bits, those fake out deaths that you get in so many of these Disney movies, which are in many ways the emotional high points of those movies, don't hit in the same way as this more down to earth story of something that, that happens all the time in various ways in people's lives of leaving places, leaving people, 
leaving things behind. Yeah, so that hits really hard in a way that nothing really has up to this point. Well, to pivot the exact opposite way from that, <laughs> I think a sequence that's really going to stay with me is the Black Cauldron. When they activate the cauldron towards the end and you get the full-on skeletons, corpses rising up, you got the big... What's the big Skeletor guy called again? The Horned King. The Horned King. The Horned King in, like, full flow. Gurgi, like, gurging around... Oh, yeah, just, I don't know if I would necessarily revisit that film in its full form, but I would go back and watch some of those sequences again, because it's, they are really impressive, they are kind of terrifying for a reason, they're very, very effectively done, it's a visual sort of milieu that I don't think Disney would ever explore to that full extent again, and hey, maybe when Halloween comes around, like, line that scene up with... Chernobog from Fantasia and the flaming pumpkin from Ichabod and Mr. Toad and you've got yourself a pretty good spooky lineup. And they're using some innovative techniques there as well. You've got the multi-layering of the animation with the cauldron born to give them that spectral effect. You've got some early computer-generated material with the cauldron itself. Just a great eerie green glow all the way through. Um, Yeah, really cool. I do want to shout out actually while we are on the Black Cauldron, if that style of animation if that kind of genre of animation is something you yearn for there's a movie that recently came out on Shudder in the UK called The Spine of Night which is basically an homage to that and it is class just really weird rotoscope animation in this like heavy metal medieval fantasy world which is like what the Black Cauldron kind of wishes it could be definitely check that out The Spine of Night on Shudder if we're talking about intense, like, action-packed sequences, I think we've got to talk about the Big Ben chase. Again, something which utilises computer animation to great effect. In The Great Mouse Detective, in that finale, when I saw the gears, the 3D gears for the first time, it struck me how much of a shift that was, and imagine being in that audience and seeing that that step forward, like literally a whole new dimension of animation sort of dawning before your eyes. It was really visually impressive, really impressive. And it it puts you in Basil's position because he's never seen anything like this either. He's been faced with this new challenge and we're being faced with this new art form, really, this new mode of expression. It's a perfect marriage of form and content in that way. It's a really effective scene and the pace of the action and the brutality of some of the action and like what Rattigan becomes in that sequence is effective, again, in a way that we haven't really seen in Disney films up to this point. And you can see so many of the, the pieces being laid in place for what you get in the Renaissance, where you get movies which have the emotional punch of Winnie the Pooh along with the action of the Great Mouse Detective and like the visual experimentation of the Black Cauldron. Yeah, that ferociousness as well, the way that comes into play towards the end of The Fox and the Hound, or really the, that central turning point in The Fox and the Hound when Todd and Copper sort of reunite and that situation is misread, that there could still be some friendship there, but there definitely isn't. I still get Todd and Copper confused. Copper should be the fox because Copper is red, but Copper is the dog. Todd is the fox. Todd thinks he can still be friends with Copper. Copper can't be friends with Todd. The ferocity in the snarling in that film is really going to stay with me, as well as just the general upsetting vibe of the whole thing. And the opening, the opening sequence of The Fox and the Hound, the really, like, the slow Mm. pounding of the drums, a basically dark mirror of Bambi, 
a very memorable sequence. It's really, really effective in the way that it sets up the bleak tone of that film that is going to continue for the rest of the runtime. The bear in that movie as well mm. will really run the gamut of Disney bears in this era. The spectrum <laughs> from Pooh to the the guy from the end of Fox and the Hound is, is pretty vast. But uh, yeah, great performance from Glenn Keane, who also did Rattigan, who's like staking his name as one of the most important, talented animators at the studio. Really forceful animation there. Heavy animation in that bear. Big bears. I'm a bear guy. I like bears. <laughs> I think this was an interesting era musically because you get so many different styles at play and there is music in all of these films, I would say, or most of these films to a greater or lesser extent. Some of them like in-universe musical number sequences, some of them just like having, it was a bit of an identity crisis, I think, in the middle of this era where it was like, oh, these films need to have original songs, but they kind of just play over the action. They're there for vibes rather than anything else. I think especially something like The Rescuers had that. But I think there's a lot of really good music here. Not the most memorable necessarily, but some interesting musical styles playing out across these eight films. Like the Sherman Brothers songs in Winnie the Pooh, for example, on something I'm necessarily going to come back to often because they're very short, basically like nursery rhymes, you know. But And because they'll make you dissolve into an absolute <laughs> flow of tears. But some very memorable melodies in there. I think probably the most iconic songs from this era are things like the Winnie the Pooh theme song and the wonderful thing about Tiggers. Yeah, oh man. And the Robin Hood stuff, Oodalally. Mm. Robin Hood and Lil Jon ran through the forest. Now, that is a soundtrack I would put on. That I'm yeah. not a big country guy, but that is just a solid like country album <laughs> to me. I don't know if that's heresy. You know, I'm not sticking Johnny Cash on, I'm sticking on the soundtrack to Disney's Robin Hood. But yeah, some little chill numbers there, but you've also got the uh, which is just bleak <laughs> in a really interesting way. As was Nottingham in that film. Just my hometown yeah. just done absolutely dirty. Oh, other good songs. Oh, Everybody Wants to Be a Cat, that yeah. is strong. I mean, that again, if we're talking about the intersection of songs and sequences... The big jazz freak out at the end of that movie, like you have to wade through the racist bits to get there, but once you get there, oh, the, the joy and the energy and the vibrancy of that. I think of the piano crashing through every floor of the house as it's all the cats are jumping around, the whole screen is turning red and purple and blue, and it's a big sort of psychedelic trip with this incredible energetic jazz underneath it. I love that sequence so much. I mean, we have to shout out the Rattigan songs from Basil the Great Mouse Detective, right? Again, killer character, love Rattigan. What a great, great addition to that film. Uh, And he has a couple of interesting numbers. We have his introductory song, The World's Greatest Criminal Mind. We have the song that he records for Basil and Dawson as they're waiting to be killed. Oh, he had great villain game when it came to uh, evil songs. It's songs after a few movies like The Rescuers and The Black Cauldron where they'd avoided really using songs to tell us things about character and move the story along. These songs tell us everything about Rattigan's character and his version of villainy, that theatricality that you get from him. That, you know, puts him in contrast to someone like the Haunt King, who's just a force of nature. Then you, you get Great Mouse Detective, which has Rattigan, who loves what he does, and therefore we love watching him do it. And again, that's, that style of musical number, that, that genre of song and that style of villain is something that we see in, in Ursula, in, in Jafar, in Scar. 
to come. So again, you can see all of the seeds being sown in these films. But look, if we're going to talk about songs, sequences, characters, I think our listeners have clocked on. We are dancing around the elephant in the room here, which is Oliver and Company, Why Should I Worry? If there was a song, a sequence, and a character that has just instantly worked its way into my brain, my body, my soul... It's that sequence. It's Dodger in that sequence. It is the song itself, which is just still a colossal bop on every level. Oh, man. I, I, I can't believe I've gone so long in my life without knowing that, Sam. I'm glad I finally do. You find it difficult to walk up down the street. <laughs> you, find it, <laughs> you, you find it difficult to like walk past construction sites without breaking in and dancing on everything. Yeah, when I'm walking from the Bowery to St. Mark's, <laughs> I just I can't stop. There's a syncopated beat. I've got sausages around my neck. Uh, there's pianos flying through the air. Um, why should I worry about that, Sam? Why should I care? I don't think you'll ever see links of sausages the same way. Or even <laughs> see links of sausages, to be honest. How often do you encounter a link of sausages? Are really just in butchers. Didn't he steal those from a hot dog stand? But I think hot dogs are, like, manufactured. They don't really yeah, have... Yeah, you wouldn't, you wouldn't get them in a link from a hot dog stand. I mean, it's it's Frankie's Hot Dogs or whatever that character was called. <laughs> he, he get only the best hot dogs! <laughs> God dogs here! <laughs> hot dogs come in links! You want 12 hot dogs? I got your hot dogs! <laughs> Uh, hey, hey, I'm carefully snipping up my hot dogs here. <laughs> I hope no dogs come and steal my hot dogs. <laughs> but yeah, that sequence is just joyous on every level. And that's not the only banger in Oliver and Company. No, Perfect isn't easy. As I said in that episode, a favourite in the Sam household. <laughs> <laughs> Don't know why I said that, as if I don't want to reveal my surname. A favourite in the Sam household. Yeah, again, big Broadway number, very much precipitate and where they were about to go on The Little Mermaid. I think a great character as well, Georgette. Like, I don't want to let Dodger run away with that movie like A Link of Sausages, because <laughs> there's some other fun stuff in there too, and, and Georgette is a big part of that. Yeah, she's great. Maybe the less said about Penny, the better. Oh yeah, don't like Penny. Don't like, don't like. I think he said orphans. She just Penny isn't an orphan. She just has orphan vibes, big orphan <laughs> energy from Penny. And I'm not about it. I'm not about Penny. I'm not about Jenny. I'm not about any of those sad little girls. Keep them away from me. Okay, so now that Sam has dunked on all orphans everywhere, well, let's talk about some more iconic characters. Sam, this was it, did we originate the Disney University Legends? I can't remember. It feels like they've well, yeah. always been part of our lives, part of this podcast. <laughs> So obviously we encountered many Disneyversity legends in the first couple of eras of this podcast, but we did not create, we did not break ground on the Disneyversity Legends Hall of Fame until a very special little guy called Uncle Waldo drunkenly ambled his way into our lives. That guy, oh, he is a, a full-on vibe machine, is... Uncle Waldo. Absolute hurricane that is Uncle Waldo blowing his way through Aristocats for like less than five minutes, <laughs> but just making such an indelible impression. He is the definition of a Disneyversity legend, and I can't wait until probably the very next series of Super 7 Disney Ultimate figures where they bring out Uncle Waldo. Uh, he's got two alternate heads, drunk and drunker, and... <laughs> He comes with like a bottle of red wine that he's been basted yeah. in. Scratch and sniff, smells like wine. That was the spark that lit 
the powder keg that became Disney versity legends. I'm not sure if that metaphor tracks. We, I think retroactively, we let in characters like Willy the Whale and Little Toot, Cosplay Owl, all the greats. <laughs> Since we have got a Disney versity legend from pretty much every movie we've looked at bar one in this era and that was never the intention mm. it was never like there needs to be a disney versity legend from every movie that's going to be a segment every episode it just so happens that especially in this era where so many of these movies have been partially forgotten and therefore their characters have been partially forgotten there's just so much fruit for us to harvest for our Disney versity legend salad. I need to stop with the metaphors. It doesn't work. <laughs> so, Arissa Castriel, Uncle Waldo. Let's see how many you can remember. Well, Robin Hood, that's an issue in and of itself. Yeah, we're, we're going to come back to Robin Hood. So there was a few too many candidates in that episode that we never quite narrowed down. Maybe before this episode is through, we will solve that mystery once and for all. Uh, but next, Winnie the Pooh. Do we have one for Winnie the Pooh? Not from Winnie the Pooh. Yeah. My argument being that all of those characters are iconic, apart from Gopher, who is not good. <laughs> so you need to be both not iconic and good. Mm-hmm. And no one from Winnie the Pooh ticks that box. The rescuers, though. What was the blue fly guy? What was he called? Evan Rude. Evan Rude, yes. He was a straight-up Disney versity legend. There was no questioning there. You were also a big fan of Orville, the albatross. Oh, yeah, loved Orville. Again, the thing that I'm going to think about from that film is is Orville and the like soft rock 70s soundtrack with the little mice Bernard and Bianca flying around on Orville through a hazy orange sunset. I do actually I have to correct the record vis-a-vis Orville because in the Rescuers episode, I made the claim that there was not really any legacy content for that movie beyond The Rescuers Down Under, which is, of course, getting into an episode. I was mistaken. I made a terrible oversight, and I feel like I've really slighted Orville. There was a 1984 educational film from Disney called All Because Man Wanted to Fly about the history of science and flight, and that was presented by Orville. Oh, that sounds great. That sounds wholesome. So there we go. A bit of bonus last and legacy content for the rescuers there. Anyway, Fox and the Hound. Okay, Fox and the Hound has to be Squeaks the Caterpillar. We saw him in the credits. We knew something yeah. special was coming up and he did 100%. not disappoint. Black Cauldron. Well, Gurgi was the first official TDLF of yeah. Disney Versity. So Gurgi wasn't a Disney Versity legend, I don't think. No, because again, bad. <laughs> he is he is bad. That's the only reason he's not in there because he sucks. Okay, I mean the Orb of Light. I don't think was a Disney Versity legend. <laughs> there was one from this episode, isn't it? Was oh, one who was it the little goblin guy? No, he creeper. A D- no, well? He's also a TDLF. There's a character from this movie that you really deeply loved. <gasps> the pig Henwen. Henwen. Yes. Oh, yeah, man. so she's a legend. I forgot. About the, I mean, the main thing I took away from the Black Cauldron was it's Lord of the Rings with a psychic pig. Oh, Henwen. <laughs> so, Basil, Great Mouse Detective, there's Fidget, who you thought was too much of a freak. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so, he is a TDLF, obviously, but I'm kind of obsessed with Fidget anyway. Obviously, Bill the Lizard, who is a prior Disney Versity legend, pops up again in that movie. I seem to remember we glommed onto the juggling octopus. Oh, we <laughs> who did. appears like, for yeah. about 10 seconds. Who also, I think, tap dances at one point. Oh, yeah, he's a 
octuple threat. <laughs> um, I don't know what his other six talents are, but I have to assume he has them. So I guess him. <laughs> I don't know if he has a name. I think he counts. I think that's official. And then Oliver and company, even though he's one of the biggest characters in the movie, we saw fit to include Dodger. Yeah, through his like relative obscurity still in the overall Disney canon, he is in there. Okay, yeah. well, that's a great lineup. But as we mentioned... Robin Hood, we had four candidates for the Disneyversity legend. So I think we need to decide once and for all which character makes it into the legend's canon. But I don't think we should do that alone, Sam. That was an episode that we were joined by the lovely Sam Clements. And I think we should get him back to figure this one out. Uh, hello? Is that Sam Clements? Oh, hi. Yep, that's me. Yes, we've got you back. How have things been since we last chatted Robin Hood? Uh, you know, oodalali, oodalali, <laughs> golly, what a time it's been, Ben and Sam. Uh, it's been so long I've been waiting for this call on, on tenterhooks for the last few months. <laughs> Just been sat by the phone waiting for the imaginary ring. <laughs> since re-watching the film, though, like I have been thinking about it a bit more, and it's like 73 minutes long. I'm just like, I just want to watch it every night it's such a fun watch and the songs are bangers it's uh yeah it stayed with me i did purchase this incredibly expensive action figure of uh, prince john the little <laughs> circus <laughs> which brings us i guess neatly round to our topic of discussion it does because one of the four candidates was of course sir hiss we also had Lady Cluck, the incredible sort of American football playing hen slash nun lady. <laughs> lady in waiting, please. I don't get the sense that uh, that she's taken a vow of chastity based on her interactions with, with little John. Right. General sexual tension that pulls us through this whole film. Broody, you'd say. Oh, very good. We also have, does he have a name, the little tortoise guy who basically looks like Sam and I put together? The tortoise is called Toby. Toby the tortoise. Okay, he is the third candidate. And then finally, we have, again, I don't think he has a name, but the crocodile slash alligator who is in charge of the golden arrow. He's referred to as Captain Crocodile. Oh, what a great name. Okay, so that at least clears up whether he's a croc or an alligator. So those were our four candidates. And I think we should decide on at least one, possibly two, who could make it into the Disneyversity Legends canon. So... Does anybody want to like immediately stake a claim for one of these characters or suggest that one of them gets removed? Who, who are we going for? I'm going to dive in, first of all, with as much as I love Captain Crocodile and his voice kills me every single time. He's got a hilariously deep voice. I don't think he belongs in the canon. I think he is like a highly commended, okay. you know, I think he's like maybe lower tier than legend. <laughs> he guards <laughs> the halls of the Disneyversity Legends canon, he's just not inside I think he's it. a fun, at Disneyland, he's a fun Easter egg for like the hardcore to seek out. Like he's maybe like engraved into like the a toilet somewhere and people were like, yeah, we'll go and seek that out specifically. But I don't think he warrants, you know, like a plush toy and an action figure and a, and a character that you can have a photo taken with, maybe. I think it's worth mentioning that the guy who provides that incredibly deep voice, Candy Candido, who basically was just famous, got by on his incredibly deep voice. He used to go on sort of late night talk shows and, and he, he had this song called I'm Feeling Mighty Low that was just basically an excuse for him to say I'm feeling mighty low he also played with his voice sped up uh, Fidget the henchman bat in Basil the Great Mouse Detective 
who is another kind of borderline case who I think Ben decided was too freaky <laughs> to be to be a Disney versity legend. But I don't know, maybe if we if we knock out Captain Crocodile and we'll let Fidget in, that kind of balances the Candy Candido skills a little bit. Well, you, you're demanding Candido representation in the Disney <laughs> yeah, Versity I think that needs to be some Candido representation. Okay, so the Croc is out. My other feeling was maybe we kick out Toby because he's cute and he's uh, basically I don't remember him in the same way that I do the absolute crazy badass that Lady Cluck is and Sir Hiss is just iconic uh, in a way that I think Toby doesn't quite live up to those two. Toby is very cute and he does that thing that all good cartoons do because he's a turtle he can hide in his shell when he's scared very emotive Mm -hmm. doing that. When you watch him though your heart melts and how could you say no to that little turtly face? (laughs) Uh, I don't know. I just think, Sam Summers, when you sent the pictures around again of our four candidates here, there were just two (laughs) that I immediately gravitated towards, and I was like, how could they not be Disney Versity Legends? And that was Lady Cluck and Sir Hiss. They both have titles and everything. They both have status that demands recognition. We can't can't base it on that. (laughs) We can't just base it on the honours system, the peerage. Come on, you can't seriously be arguing against Lady Cluck or Sir Hiss being Disney Versity Legends. They are both characters who basically nobody remembers from Robin Hood. In the general wider population, it fits that part of the Disney Versity Legends bill. They both are in it for maybe a small handful of scenes. Sir Hiss more than Lady Cluck. Lady Cluck has kind of much more minor appearances but they are just both great weird little characters who nobody remembers and deserve greater recognition i don't disagree with you ben but can i just give you one final play i guess for toby turtle uh, is when he sees <laughs> maid marion for the first time and he is so amazed to see such a beautiful woman he gets so shy and he does this really cute sort of like wave where he waves his fingers it's incredibly emotive and it says a lot <laughs> I mean, the other thing we could do is maybe for Robin Hood, in recognition of how great the supporting cast is, maybe this is one film where we do have three Disney Versity legends, where we have Lady Cluck, we have Sir Hiss, and we have Toby the Turtle. Maybe that is the legacy, really, of this film, is that it is absolutely stacked, jam-packed, with hilarious little weirdos, and we love it for that. <laughs> what, what do you think? Are we going to let three in for this one? Sam is holding up his Sir Hiss. <laughs> <laughs> I just feel like that's uh, it's, that's kind of harsh on the crocodile now. Maybe we should rank them. Yeah. Would that okay. would that make things a bit easier for us? It feels like a pretty clear Sir Hiss at number one, Lady Cluck at number two, and then Torby, and then Captain Crocodile slightly on the outskirts lurking. I agree with that ranking. Do you agree with that ranking, Ben? Are we all on the same page in terms of how these supporting players sort of rank? <laughs> yes, that would be my ranking of the four. I think Sir Hiss has to be top, not just because he's got an action figure that Sam Summers is, is delightfully modelling for us, but um, it's voiced by Terry Thomas, like an absolute legend. And they incorporate Terry Thomas's famous... Uh, he has a gap in his teeth in real life, and they're obviously really good for snake sounds um, with that. So I like how they've linked the performer to the performance, to the character. Yeah, without a doubt. Hiss is in. I'm also going to say Cluck is in. So what are we doing? Are we putting all four in? <laughs> Making this one call just absolutely moot. <laughs> yeah. Not the one I've loved having you in, Sam Clements. Yeah, maybe this just has to have its own like hallway within the Disneyversity Legends exhibition. The Robin Hood Rotunda. <laughs> 
<laughs> I think it's a demonstration of what you can do. A little bit of personality goes a long way. Mm-hmm. And I think all of these characters have that, as do a lot of the characters in Robin Hood. It's 73 minutes long. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it really does leave an impact with you. Okay, so I think it's decided then. <laughs> this call was entirely pointless. And all four of those characters are going into the Disney vs. Legends canon. I doubt that any other film we encounter will include this many candidates, let alone this many uh, official entries, but that remains to be seen for now. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll catch you soon. Yeah, nice to see you guys. Bye. Bye. <laughs> right then, Sam, the time has come for us to deliver our official rankings of The Dark Age. So there are eight films in question here. Who, how are we going to do this? Last time we sort of went in tandem. Yeah, I think we'll do, I'll do number eight, then you do number eight. And then I'll do number seven, and you do number seven. Okay. Well, I, I'm once again struck by the fact that I enjoyed all of these films. And the ranking that I have, I'm looking at what I have at the bottom of the list. And it feels wrong that that's at the bottom of the list. But, yeah, all these films are actually pretty good. So I don't know what I'm supposed to do with that information. I'm interested in how this comes out because they're all pretty good movies. I can't guess what your bottom or top is. You can probably guess at least one of those for me, but I can't guess what your bottom or top is. I think this might have like the most disparity between our two lists of any of them that we've done yeah. so far, so I think we should get cracking. Well, at the bottom of my list, and I'm questioning this even as I'm saying it, but I apparently thought this was my number eight, is The Great Mouse Detective. Which is a really fun film, and it's a good film, it really holds together, but I think it's maybe the one, it doesn't have some of the like wildest, edgiest stuff, which some of the films ranked above it do, even though they're way less consistent as films. And yet, I think compared to some of the other ones that I'm like, oh, I watch that again now, I don't think I'd go straight back to Basil. I had a fun time with Basil, I didn't absolutely love Basil. So that's ended up as my number eight, but I, I'm feeling some resistance from you. <laughs> no, that's that's interesting. That is already a huge difference in terms of where I've put that movie. My number eight, and again, I'm I'm I'm, I'm certain that this is my number eight, but we did praise this movie quite a lot earlier on in this episode, so I half rethunk it. Number eight, Fox and the Hound. Okay, well, that's my number seven. That's next for me on my list. Okay, so let's chat Fox and the Hound. I think is obviously a very effective movie. That's where I brush up against having it at the bottom because like anyone you talk to who's seen it or even seen the first 10 minutes of it in Lizzie's case, <laughs> anyone who's seen it is like, oh my God, that is traumatic. That is so sad. And it's like, all right, okay, so it succeeds. It's what it's trying to do. But I think it's a fairly like beige movie for the majority of its runtime. I think the plot is pretty threadbare. I think... Those animations, especially of like the ferocious sequences in the back half that we were praising earlier, are great. But there's a lot of like milling about in the middle and a lot of sap, which is one of my least favorite aspects of any of these movies is sap. And you get that in Fox and the Hound quite a bit. See, for me, it's low down because I actually think this is really good in a lot of ways. As you say, it is very effective emotionally. I think the complex morality of it is a bit of a curveball from Disney. It felt like a bit of a step up in emotional complexity. It's not very nice. <laughs> it's low down because I don't think I'm going to rewatch this because it was really upsetting. But I think it's a good movie and I think it is one 
that maybe has a bit more of that feeling of the first five features. I don't know if that is because it's quite Bambi-ish, because it doesn't shy away from the dark stuff, but it, I think there's quite a lot about that film that does feel like vintage, vintage Disney, not in a quality sense, but in just feels like old school Disney. So I, I've got to give it props to that. I'm just just still upset about it all so it's not ranking higher than number seven for me what's your number seven my number seven and i will be amazed if this isn't your number six is the black cauldron yeah that is my number six because it like even though i've got another movie ranked below it that is like probably the worst movie in a you know what i mean in a way that is like it has higher it has higher highs than the fox and the hound mm-hmm. i think it's high points and the stuff that it does differently to any other Disney movie is so strong and unique that I'm, I'm I'm so glad that movie exists and there are bits of it that I will go back to and watch regularly. But like that is it's a, it's a bad movie. It's not a bad movie actually because that would break my pledge that there are only two bad Disney movies. So it's not a bad movie because it has great stuff in it. But the plot is like just badly done. The characters are either bland or tall, horrible, or Henwen. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Those are the three categories. Yeah. Um, it's really, like, inconsistent, long stretches of nothing. Yeah. Yeah, it is wildly inconsistent, but it's gnarly as hell, and the gnarly bits <laughs> it, yeah. are, are, are pretty damn gnarly, and I kind of love that about it. It's so, a swing and a miss. Yeah. I think, and, like, as a film critic, I always hear film critics say, like, you'd rather see a swing and a miss than something that's just boring. And I think that's the difference between Black Cauldron and Fox and the Hound and why I've got that ranked slightly higher. Okay, so you correctly identified that as my number six. What's your number six? My number six is The Rescuers. Okay. Which I know you quite liked. And yeah. like in that episode, I came across you liked that a lot more than me. Okay, so like the main reason that's so low for me is the sap. I think I, I like the characters a lot. I, the side characters are great. Mm-hmm. Bernard and Bianca, really well fleshed out. A, a well fleshed out romance for Disney at this point in time. Very memorable villain. I just can't stand that girl. And I just can't <laughs> stand the music. I know you quite like the music as well. It's just too cheesy, and which is appropriate <laughs> for mice. It's just, it's just, it's not for me. It's not one I go back to very often at all. Okay, that's fair. Yeah, that does rank quite a bit higher for me, so we haven't got to Rescuers for me yet. But my number five would be Robin Hood, which mm-hmm. has some really great sequences in, I think especially of the Lady Cluck football sequence was really fun. The characters in it are great. It kind of just ambles along in a, in a sweet way. It's just not like a super high hitter for me, but I had a lot of fun with Robin Hood, even if it does make Nottingham look like the absolute worst place in the world. So I have literally, just as we speak, swapped round my four and five. Oh, okay. What's your number five then? My number five is now Robin Hood. Okay. There are things that I like a lot about that movie. So I've said that for all of these, right? Because as I said, they all have high points. I... I'm very interested in what it does with the Robin Hood legend. I'm very interested in the way that it incorporates elements of the Renard the Fox legend. I'm very interested in the way it incorporates elements of country and western. These are all things that appeal to me as an academic, you know? These are all things that I've... This was a great movie to dig into and study its lineage and how all these disparate elements came about to form this little oddball of a movie, this unidentified flying oddball. But despite that... I don't have that much love for it. It's not a movie. It's a movie I watched a lot as a kid. It didn't really sink its teeth into me as a kid. Again, love some of the characters. Little John, great. 
Prince John. So his, obviously, I now own an undisclosed sum's worth of plastic representing those characters. So I've obviously got some affection for it, but I just had to swap it around with my number four, which I guess I'll reveal when we get to it. Go on then, give us your number four now. Okay, my number four is Aristocats. My number four is Aristocats as well. Okay, okay, okay so, so we're both doing the same thing. They are both very similar movies in a lot of ways. They're both proper Wooly Ritherman films. That is a solid trilogy, the Wooly Ritherman Phil Harris trilogy along with The Jungle Boom. Yeah, these are woolly as hell. Yeah, <laughs> really strong, like, thematic and tonal and textual bonds between those, and they've all got Phil Harris working real magic, in my opinion. Yeah, O'Malley the Alley Cat is on fire in this film, such a fun character, you get really great musical sequences, Uncle Waldo's still in the show as well, that joyous everybody wants to be a cat sequence. This was the one that has the most problematic stuff in it, which is kind of upsetting because it gets in the middle of an otherwise really enjoyable film that I have a lot of affection for from my childhood as well. So I had that and Robin Hood the other way around until just now and when my gut told me Aristocats because I think Robin Hood is like a more accomplished and more interesting movie but Aristocats I just prefer I I do prefer the characters I do love O'Malley I love Uncle Waldo and I love the songs so my gut told me I prefer Aristocats in my heart okay well that being the case I think your number three is probably going to then be the Great Mouse Detective, you've got Basil at number three, I think. Yeah, like Basil himself, you have correctly deduced what my top two are. <laughs> yes. I'm not sure why I preferred that to you. I just think that's a really neat, tight, little fun movie. It has a kind of consistency of quality, especially in terms of the way the plot is pierced that very few of the movies in this era have. That's one of the main downfalls of all of these movies. They all have lags. And if you want to lionise Walt Disney, one of the things you might say is that he knew how to pierce a movie. That's one of the things a a lot of people say. Walt Disney was an expert at how to structure and pierce a film. And that might be one of the ways in which his loss is most keenly felt. And I want to say, maybe... The fact that we've got A. Musker and Clements directing this, who would prove themselves to be expert directors in the Disney Renaissance era, and possibly Katzenberg overseeing things, who has experience in in live-action movies at a big movie studio, Paramount, there is a consistency here which lacks in all the other movies, and that's why I've just put it up there. And I like Rattigan, and I like the action. That is fair. Well, my number three was The Rescuers. Uh, which I just had a really good time with. I gravitated towards those characters. The adventure tone of it was really fun. Uh, I think it brought that world to life in a really poppy way. I thought the songs were sweet. I loved Orville. Orville Girl is a bit boring. And the human villain was kind of creepy, but also not the best villain that we've seen uh, in a Disney film. But I, I had a lot of time for the rescuers, and I'm really excited to get to Rescuers Down Under in this next era. But that means then, as I predicted, we both have the same films in our top two. I think we have them the other way around. So uh-huh. I'm going to say, Sam, your number one has to be Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh, closely followed by... Oliver and Company at number two. I have them the other way round. I think that's totally fair. Yeah, that's obviously very... Well, it's not really very close for me because of how much I love Winnie the Pooh, but that is so personal. 
I think it is a great movie. We talked about the way it experiments with its visuals and with its story world in the way that you haven't seen a Disney feature up to that point and the way that the characters are so charming and the music's so charming. And obviously it doesn't really have a story, so to speak, but it's a hangout movie is what it is. You just like to spend time with those guys. Despite all of that, the reason why it's a Oliver and Company is because of the personal connection I have to it which, you know, you don't have, and that's fine. And I think in many ways, Oliver and Company is arguably better. It's hard to get away from how cool it is. Yeah, Oliver and Company just was a pure blast of energy, and the songs and the characters and the uh, the angular modernity of it has really stayed with me over the last couple of weeks since we recorded that episode. That is the one that I think I will happily revisit, partly because of the songs. Yeah, I was really happy to discover Oliver and Company through this. Winnie the Pooh made it into my number two because... I just was so charmed by that film, and I wasn't really... I mean, Winnie the Pooh obviously is cute, but I wasn't expecting to love that film in the way that I did, or to be so kind of swept away by the way that it's animated, by the way that it's presented. Really had a sweet time with Winnie the Pooh. So I'm glad that we've stayed friends over this, that I haven't had to betray you by putting Winnie the Pooh at the bottom of my list. (laughs) And that's it. That's the end of the podcast. (laughs) I mean, our lists were closer than I thought, in actual fact. The only real discrepancy is which mouse detectives we personally thought were the greater. (laughs) That's true. That's true. Yeah, Rescue isn't number three for me. Basil down at the bottom. You basically had the opposite of that. Yeah. Yeah, a lot lot of mice detectives. A lot of mouse detectives. Rook 4 as well as from this this era, so... Yes, from the Aristocats. (laughs) It was all about mouse detectives. That's our rankings of the Dark Age films, but let's update our overall top fives. Sam, do any of these... Does Winnie the Pooh, for you, make it into your overall top five of the films we've watched so far? It does not. Shockingly enough. Et tu, Sam Summers. (laughs) Et tu. You you chucked him away in the Hundred Acre Wood and strolled off without a care in the world, didn't you? (laughs) (laughs) How Drop kicked Piglet into the sun. We all heard it, Sam. We all heard. All of our listeners know what you did. He's not in there. He's not even... I'm looking at my list. I don't think he's even number six. (laughs) So is your top five the same as it was in the last study group episode? Can you remind us of what that was? It is Lily and the Tramp, The Jungle Book, Sleeping Beauty, Fantasia, Pinocchio. God, Pinocchio, you're number one. It blows my mind. It's crazy to me. What an absolute horror show. Uh, You're reaching for your Pinocchio figure as we speak. Oh, Pinocchio is waving at me. Oh, he is a toy who is a puppet who wants to be a real boy. Do you think when you leave the room, you've got a Toy Story situation and he wants to be a real puppet? I think he would be one of the least threatening Disney characters to have a toy of coming to life in your house. I'd be more worried about Sir Hiss. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't think Oliver and Company necessarily breaks my top five either. So my top five last time was 101 Dalmatians, The Jungle Book, Bambi, Lady and the Tramp, and Sleeping Beauty. Which, that's a pretty banging top five. And I don't, as much as I had a lot of affection for Oliver and Company, I don't think that quite breaks in. So our top fives, for now, remain the same. For now, I'd be astonished if they remain the same at the end of the Renaissance era. We'll have to wait and see. Before we wrap this up then, I think it's time for another quick university dispatch. Another update from the world of Disneyversity that's happened since you last heard from us. And that involves something that was mentioned on our Basil the Great Mouse Detective episode, featuring my boss, Nick Dissemlian, editor of Empire Magazine. And since we recorded that episode with Nick, a certain something came into my life 
due to Nick's generosity. And I think it's time we bring him in to explain what that is. Hello? Hello? Oh, <laughs> hello, is that Nick Dissemlian back once again with Tales of Basil, the Great Mouse Detective? No, it's Fidget! Oh, oh no! <laughs> it's not, it's me, it's me. Get off the line, Fidget. He's always doing that. He's always picking up the extension. Uh, hi, guys. How are you doing? We are great. How have you been? I've been well. Fidget impressions aside, it's been, it's been going all right. <laughs> well, we've called you back in because uh, a couple of weeks ago now, you enriched my life considerably in the wake of our recording of the Basil the Great Mouse Detective episode. I, I'm going to leave the telling of the tale as it is to you. Nick, tell me what you did. It's a short tale, uh, unlike uh, unlike Rattigans. Yeah, I mean, you know, when you've got connections in the rodent underworld, you've got to use them. And so, you know, this is a piece of um, very sort of contraband merch. A Rattigan plushie, I guess? You describe it as a beanbag. It does, to me, it doesn't look like a beanbag. You can't sit on it. It's not got beans in it. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. Wait, it's not got beans I in it? I can confirm it has got beans, yeah. as in, I believe we briefly mentioned it on the episode. We were like, why is there no... Yeah merch for the like weird 80s films they just don't do anything for those characters anymore but back in the day they did and there was i think we mentioned on the episode a rattigan beanbag that i couldn't stop thinking about sam couldn't stop thinking about it either and then i managed to procure one um because who wouldn't want a which child would not or or adult (laughs) would not want a sort of plushy version of a putrid evil rat so i i did a bit of uh, online searching and finally track down for ben a wonderful rattigan plushy beanbag apparently it is a beanbag he has got beans so i'm holding the rattigan beanbag in my very hands right now we will put a picture of him on the twitter maybe even on our instagram story we don't tend to do that but for rattigan we might make an exception but listen to this Oh, that's beans. That's beans. That's pure <laughs> I know beans. that sound anywhere. <laughs> beans confirmed. So we're in the Empire office one day uh, after having recorded our episode, and Nick is like, hey, I've got something for you, by the way, and you hand me a brown envelope. And I don't know that my life is about to change, but I open this envelope and the Rattigan beanbag falls out. And I think it's fair to say I lost my mind for about half an hour afterwards. It was closer to four working days. <laughs> And then I get a text from Ben. I get a WhatsApp message. You get an urgent message saying, Sam. Sam, I need need to do a video call. Can you do a video call now? And I'm like, all right, okay, I'm in a cafe doing some work, but I guess, I I mean, it sounds pretty important. What is it? And it's like, all right, okay, I just need to get Nick. I'm sitting there absolutely on tenterhooks and literally an hour later, having absolutely no idea what this was going to be, I get this call and it's you two absolutely freaking out (laughs) over this ratican beanbag and I just collapse in tears in public. Well, I can confirm that he is wonderful, uh, he's got little kind of stringy legs. He's got a big old wiry tail. He's full of beans in the middle. But the thing that really wows me about the Rattigan beanbag, which I, I think might now be the unofficial Disneyversity mascot, is the level of clothes he's wearing. He has a plush sort of cloak that he's got on. He's got a jacket. He's got a waistcoat under the jacket. And then he's got like a cravat underneath that. Like, how many clothes does this guy need? 
Uh, you just don't get Disney merch quite as elegant and well-dressed as that these days. You'd get into any sort of uh, event. I mean, that said, Nick, I've, I've brought this up many times on this episode <laughs> so far, but this is a, a very expensive action figure of Prince John that I just bought, uh, and he's got a nice little cloak there as well. That's but very... I, I take your point. <laughs> sartorially, very sartorially well-dressed line. They look like they're going to the same dinner party. They do. <laughs> we just love a well-dressed Disney villain in, like, toy form. So it came from eBay. I couldn't tell you the the backstory of that toy, wh- where it's been. <laughs> Maybe, presumably, it was made in the eighties, right? So it's it's got to have been some place. It's seen some stuff. Yeah, I think so. Let me check the label. It's oh, it was made in Indonesia. Uh, it has oh. got a label that says Ratigan on it. I don't think it's mm-hmm. got a date anywhere. No, you'll have to get it tested. I think you should get some shots. Um, you know, just in case the the bubonic plague is. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I, I, it looks pretty pristine. I'm assuming there are no factories still producing, manufacturing Rattigan plushy beanbag toys. I just can't can't see it. So it must be must have a few decades on him, but it's in good condition. Very good condition. He's looking sharp. Maybe the popularity of Rattigan. We can be the people bringing Rattigan back to the people. Every Disney store and in all of the theme parks, you'll be able to get a whole aisle's worth of Rattigan merch, including renewed version of the Rattigan beanbag. That is the dream. Nick, thank you so much for this. I'm still losing my mind over it on a daily basis. I can confirm that my partner Lizzie absolutely hates it and wants it hidden away in the house where nobody can see it. And I'm going to be fighting against that at every opportunity. You're so welcome. It's brought me so much joy uh, seeing how much joy this object has given you. And uh, I will renew my quest to find a fidget. maybe if you get a fidget then Rattigan goes up the rankings in this household of what's acceptable uh, to be out on display (laughs) like Rattigan can be out fidget gets hidden away somewhere we'll see well thanks so much for joining us again and thank you for the Rattigan beanbag and hopefully we might have you back soon at some point let's see we'd love to thank you guys cheers Bye. bye that is it then study group and while we're still on a bit of a break at the moment we promise there's some pretty exciting stuff to come because as batman or maybe alfred taught us the night is darkest just before the dawn and the dark age of disney set the stage for a major creative rebirth we're heading into the era widely known as the disney renaissance which is basically the bangers era 2.0 does that feel like an accurate description sam I mean, it's banger after banger in more ways than one. The the music is off the charts to start with. Very strong list of films. Off the top of my head, one movie I don't really like from that era, and the rest are all super strong, literally in the case of Hercules. (laughs) And if you're keeping track of this, I think we've decided that this era is going to end with Fantasia 2000. So this era, if you're keeping track, is going to be The Little Mermaid, The Rescuers Down Under... Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, The Lion King, Pocahontas, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, Hercules, Mulan, Tarzan, and Fantasia 2000. Those are going to be the next 10 main episodes of Disneyversity. It's going to be off the chain. It's going to be great. I'm so excited. Half of those films are ones I completely grew up watching over and over and over again. Half of them I still barely know, so I'm really excited to jump into it all. 
And I feel like through the last few episodes, we've kind of set up how we got here. Jeffrey Katzenberg is a major figure at the studio. We've got Howard Ashman and Alan Menken coming through on the musical side. We have starry cast members lending their voices to these films. We have 3D animation coming through in a pretty big way. The stage is well and truly set for the Renaissance. So yeah, we're not quite done with our break yet, but it won't be too long until we're back in business, hopefully with some pretty special stuff in store. So bear with us. And we'll be ready for our own Disneyversity renaissance before too long. For now, it's goodbye from Sam. Goodbye. It's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from the Ratican Beanbag. Disneyversity is brought to you by Ben Travis and Sam Summers. Our artwork is by Ollie Gibbs and our music is by Nefetz. Follow us at Disneyversity on Twitter and Instagram and catch you for next week's class. Thank you.